I want to start this morning with a question. How do you know for sure that you are saved? What does a Christian look like? How does a Christian act? What does a Christian believe? How does a Christian treat other people? How do you, can you know for sure that you are saved? Is it possible to have assurance of salvation? I'm not asking this morning, how does someone get saved? The gospel is clear that sinners come to understand their need of a Savior, and they realize that Jesus Christ died on the cross for their sins, and they turn from their sin and place their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. I'm, I'm asking this morning for those of you that are believers, how do you know for sure that you're saved, and what does a Christian look like? We're going to start a series in the letters of John. We'll spend several weeks in 1 John, and then we'll go to 2 John and 3 John. And he writes, he wants people to know what it looks like. He wants believers to have assurance of their salvation. So what does it look like? What does a Christian look like, and how do you know if you are saved? And, and then can you even know? Is it possible to have assurance of your faith? Is it possible to have absolute confidence? How do we even know that any of this is true? The gospel that I just declared to you, how, why should you place your faith and trust in this? Is it possible to have truth? I want to read some very, very sad words for you this morning of someone who describes why they turned from the faith. I found uh, an article that was on a blog, and the author dis describes why she turned from the faith. And then she lists several reasons why, why you also ought to turn from the faith, and why all of this that I'm going to proclaim this morning is baloney. Um, in the day and age we live in, we're hearing more and more of these deconversion stories, and they're very popular on social media. So how, is what you believe, is it worth continuing to believe? Like, should you hang in there? Is this really true? Here's what the author said. It was not a simple decision when I left my faith behind. However, I could no longer ignore the historical and social truths that surrounded me. For, for me, the Bible became a book written by men that reinforced a patriarchal view of society. I began to identify as an atheist, turned away from the faith. It, then there's a, there's a separate article that describes uh, the reasons why w w this isn't true and we shouldn't put our faith and trust in it. And, and, and it even goes on to explain the damage, all of the damage that religion has done to society. Is, is that true? Is any of this true? Or is religion, has it just done damage to society? Here's what the author says. Religion has been a part of humanity since the first astronomers peered into the sky and created elaborate stories to define the movements of our universe. It made its way into our minds as we fearfully created devils and demons to explain the danger lurking in the darkness of night. It has been both enchanted and burdened us as we attempt to define our world with the information available to us as we work our way through history. However, things are, qu are quickly changing. For a growing number of us worldwide, don't miss what is said here, for a growing number of us worldwide, what was once indescribable is now easily explained by the vast data we have gathered as we work towards refining our understanding. We are becoming painfully aware that although our religions gave us a starting place for thinking of how the world functions, they no longer serve us in that process and in fact have left a trail of destruction in their historic path. Did you catch what she's saying? 
For a growing number of us worldwide, what was once indescribable is now easily explained with data. She's saying the faith, the religions that we grew up with, this blind faith in a bunch of unexplainable facts, we can now explain with science and data, and we're better off if we leave it behind. And then she goes on to explain several things that are damaging and that, that encouraging you to leave behind your faith. Number one on the list is the assumption of truth. Can we claim that there's absolute truth? Most of our world's major religions each assume that it is their faith alone that is the absolute truth and refuse to concede that those traditions may be mistaken. Instead, they discover ways to force conflicting information to adapt to their own doctrine, no matter how effective the evidence is at actually disproving the rationality of that particular religion. The problem with this is that by insisting that an obviously fabricated story is absolute truth, the opportunity of arriving at the actual truth is greatly diminished. It creates a world where stories are placed above reality and reality is never within reach. It creates a mental mindset in people that draw, driven by misinformation and then passed on to future generations where misguided concepts are perpetuated. She would look at the Bible that she's left behind and say, they're stories, they're fabricated, there's no miracles there. We're better off to leave it behind. Here, here's the concluding paragraph. It's time to let go and rise above the outdated and cruel exploits of our past that we inherited from our ancestors and realize that our early misinterpretations of our world do not have to define the future of humanity we have grown. We have reached a time in our history where the misunderstandings of the past must be reconciled and the truth about the origins of our early beliefs must be revealed. It's time that our world's religions face the tragic horrors of their past and make honest progression towards love and kindness for all humanity. Our world, our peace, our growth all depend upon us and our ability to move forward in our understanding. It's time we embrace our humanity and cultivate the harmonious future we all deserve. My question for you is, is the author right? Should we leave all of this behind? Is the only way forward to deny that any of this is true and that the only place we're going to find any understanding in life is apart from religion? Can you know for sure that this is true? Can you have assurance in that sense? So many would ring true with the author's words. Perhaps you're here this morning and maybe you don't agree with all of it, but you you're wondering and questioning, is it time to move on? Is, the tru is, the is this true? Is there something different and better out there? Teens, college students, I, I like, I'm burdened for you guys that you're, you're growing up in a world that claims the only absolute truth that exists is that there is no absolute truth. And, and you're going to come up with many who look at your faith and say, you need to leave that behind. We now have data and science that disprove your blind faith. So will, will your faith hold to the test? Will what you believe be true? I want us to think about that this morning because the time and age that we're in is not unique. We're not unique in history. In fact, John is writing perhaps 50 to 60 years after the death of Christ. And the reason he's writing is because there's a new group of teachers that have crept into the church. And they're beginning to explain away Jesus. They're, they're beginning to say that it's impossible to know for sure. And they're beginning to say that Jesus perhaps wasn't even real. Whatever their teaching was, though we may not have exact certainty on it, John's here to write and to say, don't lose faith. 
the Jesus that we've believed in, he's really the one. And there is no better way. It's not time to leave it behind. These aren't myths and fables. And so I want us to dig into it this morning because just like John writes to his little children and he says, listen, you can have confidence. Don't turn away from the faith. I want us to be a people that have assurance that we know for sure the truth of salvation. We want to be people who know and understand God and his word and we say, yes, this is a reasonable faith. It really will support reality. It has answers for reality and it's a truth that we cling to and we want to hold on to. This is a truth that we can know so that we would know for sure who God is and we can have assurance of our salvation. So look at 1 John chapter 1. Let me start reading. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. The first two sentences are like this jumble of thoughts. It's a little confusing to sort through it. But for a second, set them aside and look at verse 3 because the main verb in the passage is in verse 3. And when you catch that, we can go back and explain the first two verses. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you. That we proclaim, there's your main verb. That's what this passage is built around. There's something that Paul is proclaiming. He's saying, we're proclaiming to you something that we have seen and heard. We're proclaiming Jesus to you that we have seen and we have heard. What has he seen and what has he heard? Go back to verse 1. It was from the beginning. It, it, it was something that we heard. It was something that we saw with our eyes, we looked upon, we've touched with our hands concerning the word of life. John is sitting there saying, I, I, I was there, I was an eyewitness from the beginning. This was God's plan to reveal himself to us that Jesus would come to this earth. He's the word of life and we're proclaiming Jesus to you. It, Jesus showed himself to us. He was manifested to us. And now we testify and we proclaim all of it to you. So there's a couple of things that we need to understand in these verse two verses, a couple of matters to clear up that will then help us deal with the rest of the text. First of all, in verse one, that which we've looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. What is the word of life? Who is the word of life? As conservative scholars look at this, and these are good men who... Uh, disagree on this, so there's a couple of different ways to take it, and um, the one would be to look at the word of life and to say, well, this is the personal word. This is Jesus, just like in John chapter 1, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. This is Jesus who came and dwelt among us, and he's the word of life. Others would look at it and say that John is, is not talking about Jesus, but about the message of the gospel, the word that brings life. So you see John in Revelation talk about the crown of life, the water of life, the book of life. And here John is talking about the word that brings life. So 
There's a couple of different ways to take it. I'm, I'm sort of inclined to think that John is talking about Jesus, the actual person. He's talking about the, the, the person that his hands have touched. He was there. He actually experienced, especially in relation to John chapter 1, the word that came and dwelt among us. I think the same author here is tying some of the same thoughts together. And yet in the end, I think we see that it doesn't have to be a sharp distinction necessarily because look when Jesus the word of life comes he brings a message that is life he brings the truth of the gospel which is life if you remember our series as a church in the gospel of John that's what John Jesus wanted Mar Martha to catch at the resurrection in John chapter 11 he says Martha your brother will rise again she says I know he will rise again at the resurrection he says I am the resurrection and the life Jesus is the life. John wanted his readers to catch that. Do you remember the theme verse of the Gospel of John that we walked through this spring? I think I've got it for you. John chapter 20, verse 31. He was the purpose statement in the Gospel that we covered this spring. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. By believing in the name of Jesus, the Word, the Word who became flesh and dwelt among us, they would find life. And now John writes 1 John and he wants them to understand that by believing in Jesus, you have life. He's the Word who brings life. We saw him. We testified to it. And so he's the Word of life. So that's the first thing we want to clear up. The second thing, make sure you realize what John is saying in verses 1 and 2 because it teaches us something about the nature of faith. What is John saying in verses 1 and 2? We heard, we saw with our eyes, we looked upon, we touched with our hands. This life was made manifest to it and now this is what we're proclaiming. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying, I was an eyewitness. Listen, my little children, some, some false teachers have crept in and they're trying to explain away what I saw with my own eyes. I saw Jesus. I touched him. I looked upon him. You know what John is saying? He's saying, I've got the trump card. My experience, eyewitness testimony, even in our own courts of law, what's the greatest evidence? Eyewitness testimony is given a very high place of evidence as long as the witness is credible with their character. Well, here's John, a credible witness with credible character, and he's saying, I was there. I saw it. Don't turn back. Here's the encouraging thing for you and I. We have a faith that is not built on fabricated stories. It is built on reliable source documents of eyewitnesses to the accounts that it represents. And so if you're tempted to discount this because you think it's a bunch of stories made up, you're not being honest with the effects of the historical reliability of the New Testament scriptures that we possess we have, I, so this teaches us something about the nature of faith. Faith is not a blind leap in the dark. It's not against all odds, I'm going to put my faith in something that I can't explain. Faith is very reasonable. John is saying, don't turn away, guys. I was there. The evidence points to the fact that the things I'm saying are true. I could tell you this. If you were to drive a little bit north of Trenton, you would get to Princeton University. 
The first president of Princeton University, which I have to look because I don't exactly know, was John Dickerson. I have faith in that. His name was John Dickerson. The school was chartered in 1746. He became the first president in 1747. I've never met him. I don't know anyone who has. I didn't even remember his name till I had to go back and look at it, but I have faith that he's the first president. Why? There's reliable documents. There's a train of evidence that points to the fact that he, what do you, so you could believe, and that's not a great leap of faith. It's not a shot in the dark. Let me bring it a little closer to home. Last Sunday, the, the Philadelphia Eagles beat the Washington Redskins by a score of, I had to look again. Somebody can tell me, I'm sure. 32 to 27, right? Come from behind victory, okay? I wasn't there. I haven't talked to anyone who is. It's not a great leap of faith for me to believe that because there's historical, reliable evidence. And here's the thing about our faith. It doesn't matter whether it was two days ago, one week ago, 250 years ago, or 2,000 years ago, as long as the same criteria for historical data and evidence remains the same, faith is not a blind leap in the dark. It's reasonable. And John is saying, I was there. I was an eyewitness. Why are you letting these people come in and explain away what I know to be true? And brothers and sisters, we gather here together as people who, who have the same record of evidence from people who were eyewitnesses to the accounts of this is who Jesus is. This is the gospel that he proclaimed and it has been creating God's people throughout the generations until we gather here together today. And John is saying, I proclaim this to you. This is what I'm trying to make known to you. And you look at verse 3. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Here's what's really encouraging about this passage. John is saying that the truth about Jesus Christ is what brings fellowship. Fellowship with God, but also with one another. It's what creates fellowship on this horizontal level here as well. Did you catch and see what it is? So that you two may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with his son Jesus Christ. He's saying there's a, there's a vertical fellowship that we have with God the Father and His Son Jesus Christ. It's the same fellowship that extends to us on a horizontal level so that you can remain part of us. In chapter 2, he's going to make it really explicit that there's a group of people who have departed in their far, false doctrine. I believe it's chapter 2, verse 19, and he says that they went out from us, but they were not of us, for if they had been of us, they would have continued with us but they went out that it might become plain that they are not all of us. Not talking about people that just leave and go to a different church for whatever reason. He's talking about people who have left the faith. They're no longer a part of us or they've started a church with false heretical doctrine. They're, they're no longer having that fellowship. This is where true fellowship comes from. As people, as human beings, we long for genuine fellowship. We long to have people know us and to know our stories and to find community and relationship and fellowship and belonging. Where will that come from? 
It will not come from common interests. It will not come from agreed-upon forms and standards that we all try to fit in the same mold. True fellowship comes from Jesus Christ and the truth of the gospel. That's what gives us a relationship with one another. It's what gives us a relationship with God, and that's where true joy is brought about. That's what we as a people want to be about. Let me keep moving for sake of time. So as we, as we go through this as a church, let me talk about some applications that come from this. I also want to give you the purpose statement of this book. Where are we going as a church in the next weeks? As we look through this book, um, we won't cover every single passage verse by verse. Part of the reason for that, in the way that John writes, he's going to give three tests. I asked, how do you know for sure that you're a Christian? There's three themes that John circles to over and over. And so he covers it a little bit in chapter 2, and he covers a little bit in chapter 5, and then on the next test, the other theme, there's chapter 1 and chapter 3, and he hits it again. Uh, and, and so he keeps circling back to these same three themes. So we're going to spend a week on each one of the tests and try to pull those passages in throughout the book. Then we'll take a couple weeks and look at a few themes that we skipped over in the book. And then we'll look at Second and Third John, which are particular examples, one to a church and one to a person that kind of bear out the truths of this book. So here's the three tests that we're going to cover. John says this is how you can know for sure that you're a Christian. The people that really love God, people who have had their lives changed by the truth of Jesus Christ, there's kind of three tests or three characteristics, three vital signs. One is the moral test that they don't continue to walk in sin. People who really love Jesus know how to repent of their sin. Their fellowship, light and darkness, has no fellowship. And so that's one of the tests that he's going to cover. There's a theological test that, that people who love Jesus believe the right truths about Jesus. And so we're going to walk through that and understand why the center of our faith, the gospel and Jesus and who he is, when you depart from that, you can't really say you're one of us. And then thirdly, there's the social test that people who really love Jesus love other people that love Jesus. That the love of the brethren in the body is evidence that we know who Jesus Christ is. And, and these are the truths that we will try to walk through together as a church. A second application as we think through this and where this is going and even something that we covered today the, the, the certainty of truth should encourage you this morning, believer, that, that we, there really is truth and we really can know the realities of the gospel. The word became flesh and dwelt among us and his word is truth. He is truth. And this is why he came. And so as we as a people dig into this, we can know what truth is. I want you to see the purpose statement for the book of 1 John. It's 1 John chapter 5, verse 13. 1 John chapter 5, verse 13, if you flip over there, and it says this, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. Now contrast this with the Gospel of John that we walked through this spring. John wrote his explaining everything about Jesus so that you would believe and that by believing you would have life in his name. So John wrote to convince unbelievers Jesus really is who he says he is. 
First John, this time John writes, this time around, and he says, I'm writing to you who have believed in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. He's writing to believers to encourage them to say, don't give up. It's this warm letter. He calls them my little children, and he says, this is the truth. I want you to know it. And so you have this quote in your bulletin by John Stott. The Gospel of John was written for unbelievers that they might read the testimony of God to his son, believe in him to whom the testimony pointed, and thus receive life through faith. This letter, on the other hand, was written for believers. John's desire for them is not that they may believe and receive, but that having believed, they may know that they have received and therefore continue to have eternal life. John writes to encourage believers. That's why we don't know a great deal about the heresy that was being preached. The, the, the error about who Christ was. John's point was not to confuse and rebuke the false teachers. His point was to encourage the church and say, they're wrong, don't give up, this is the truth. And, and that's what John, John wants to encourage the believers about the truth of Jesus. We really can know truth. And so believers this morning, I want you to be encouraged as we go through this through the week. Test yourselves, examine yourself. Does my life reflect someone who says they follow Christ? Do I pass these tests? Has Christ worked in my heart and life? Can we know for sure the truth of the gospel? And I believe that we can. A third application as we look through this this morning, I think one of the things that's really neat in, in verses 1 and 2 of 1 John chapter 1, John is saying that the truth about Jesus was made known, it was manifest, it was shown to us, and then in verse 2, we testify and proclaim to the eternal life. He uses two different words, both speak of knowledge and experience, and he's saying, we're telling others about what we ourselves experienced. Here's the encouraging truth, brothers and sisters. The gospel is not something that God revealed to a few select people and said, I'm going to manifest this to you. Hang on to it. Shield it. Hide it under a bushel. Right? Says, says, no, God showed us the truth and now we testify, we proclaim, we're continuing to tell others. The gospel is something that from the very beginning God's plan for redemption was that we would testify and make known. So we as a church need to be people that once these truths have been shown to us, the, the lost should be on our hearts, communicating the truth to people that we live in the same neighborhoods as, we work in the same workplaces, we're in this community as we look at Shimong and Tabernacle and Medford, Cherry Hill, Marlton, wherever God has called you to work, there's people that if it's been manifested to you, you ought to testify and proclaim and help people see the truth of the gospel that's been shown to us. And then the fourth application that I want to spend just a little bit of time on, this is where true fellowship comes from. In fact, this is what a church is built around, these truths of who Jesus Christ is. A church is a group of people who have said, the truth that we've been shown about Jesus Christ 
We testify to it. We proclaim to it. We unite ourselves around these truths and we're committed to one another and we gather together around the truth of Jesus Christ and his gospel. Uh, Just this morning, I was able to walk through the new members class and a couple of passages of scripture that, that make this clear and we walked through it this summer as well. In Matthew chapter 16, Jesus is helping his disciples understand part of what the church's responsibility was going to be. Why do I say that this fellowship is something that is very central to the idea of what the church is. We won't have fellowship any other place than Jesus, and in fact, it's, prim- it's, it's the definition of what a church is. What is a church? Why do we gather? Where does our fellowship come from? Well, in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus asks his disciples this question. It's a very familiar passage. Jesus says this, Now when Jesus had come to the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? Verse 14. And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Let me stop right there before we keep going. Here's what Jesus is saying. Who do people say that I am? And the disciples have all these answers. And he says, But who do you say that I am? And Peter makes this great Christological confession saying, You're the Messiah. He gets the identity of Jesus right. This is the truth of who Jesus is. This is the truth of the word who brings life. And then notice the authority that Jesus gives to Peter and And then by delegation, every other believer who makes the same confession that Peter makes. He says this, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Peter was not the only one who got those keys. Everyone who made the same profession that Peter made has, has Jesus' authority to bind and loose, to, to speak about who makes a right profession and what a right profession is. How do we see this and know this? Go two chapters over to Matthew chapter 18, verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Now, that passage we're familiar with in terms of church discipline and the steps of how do we deal with confrontation in the church? How do we deal with conflict and when people sin against us and so we're familiar with some of those steps of resolving what what is a little bit unfamiliar to us is the context of the next couple verses so i haven't skipped anything look at the very next verse um, in verse 18 truly i say to you whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven again i say to you if two or three agree on earth about anything they ask it will be done for them by my father in heaven for where two or three are gathered in my name there i am among them we've heard that two or three gathered in my name but the thought there is not that anytime two or three christians are there there's a special presence of god though that's true the context is that two or three christians who gather together 
in the name of Jesus. Who do you say Jesus is? That's who I say Jesus is. We're united together in that. We're confessing the same truth. We're binding ourselves. We have fellowship around the word that brings life. And we commit ourselves to these truths. And we have the ability, the authority from Jesus, the entire congregation does, to speak with Jesus' authority if someone departs from the faith. If, the, if their lifestyle no longer matches their confession. Now, the church can't make people saved or unsaved. That's a personal relationship between them and God. But the church has the responsibility to affirm, to say, yes, as near as we can tell, your profession of faith matches our profession of faith, and we're going to hold one another accountable and have fellowship in walking out these truths of the gospel. Now, I walk through that a little bit more detailed in the new members class. I would encourage any of you to come to those sessions. There's a couple of weeks that we try to unpack that further than our time this morning allows. But what I want you to see is that's where fellowship comes from, a mutual confession of who Jesus Christ is and a committing one another to how does the church exercise those keys? How do we walk out together? Primarily, it's through a right preaching of the word of God. This is who Jesus is the one that John saw, the one that John touched, the one he proclaimed to us. Let's not lose the truth. And then as we go through baptism, as we go through communion this morning on a regular basis, in baptism we're bringing people into the church, in communion we're, we're, we're gathering together and we're saying, do you believe in who Jesus is? Do you remember what he did for you? This is where we have true fellowship Let's unite ourselves again to these truths, to, to this commitment that we've made to God and to one another. That's where fellowship comes from. Brothers and sisters, there is no new truth. This is not an old book that needs to be thrown away. This is not outdated. We have reasonable faith in a Jesus Christ that John saw his hands touched. He talked with him. He, and now John has proclaimed him to you and I saying, don't lose heart. Believe. I want you to know for sure that you have eternal life. And I want us to walk through this together as a church because this is where we really find fellowship around the person of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you. We're grateful for who you are as God. We're grateful for the fellowship that you've given to us in the person of your Son, Jesus Christ. We want to know and understand the truths of who Jesus is. We want to be reminded that our faith is real. It's reasonable. It's grounded in things that eyewitnesses wrote to us about. We want to walk with you well. We don't want to walk in sin we want to believe the right things about you. We want to love the brethren as we should. Oh, Father, encourage our hearts with these truths that we would know for sure that we have eternal life. We ask and pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.